Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Good morning, everybody. Uh, to the second to last day of the Empire Lecture Series. Um, we're very pleased and grateful to have with us here today, Dr. Ranjith Ramasamy, the uh, Director of Reproductive Urology at the University of Miami. Uh, Dr. Ramasamy completed his urologic residency here in the New York section at uh, Weill Cornell, I believe, and then went to Baylor for a fellowship, uh, now at Miami. So thank you, uh, Dr. Ramasamy, for being here with us. Um, and it, as a start, like I said, we usually ask a, a question or two just as advice to residents. And, you know, I follow you on Twitter and I, was, I think I saw you had several um, best posters at the AUA. Um, you've got tons of published work. So for residents who are interested in being both uh, researchers and clinicians, do you have any advice on how to find the right balance for that? Um, I think sometimes, you know, one can pull away from the other for sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. Very happy to be here. Uh, very happy to connect back with, um, with folks from New York. Um, I think the uh, question that you asked is probably uh, way more pertinent now, um, even a few years ago before I started practice, certainly when I was in residency. Um, the pressures of uh, clinical practice have uh, uh, become so much uh, that somehow uh, research and sometimes, unfortunately, even teaching uh, and education uh, can fall by the wayside. Uh, but the important thing to do um, as residents, um, as trainees, and even as young faculty, I think it's important to understand if you try and somehow mesh all of them together, um, it will work. Um, I think if you try and keep this is research, this is clinical, this is education, I think that's where. Um, when you set boundaries to yourself, I think that's when it becomes a challenge when you don't have time for one or the other. Uh, but somehow, if you're able to see patients, uh, enroll them in clinical trials, uh, generate funding uh, from those clinical trials, uh, which can help with your bottom line uh, clinical revenue, I think that's when it becomes a real possibility. Um, that's when um, all of them, when they mesh together, uh, becomes uh, so much easier. Um, and somehow to teach along this process of what research is, what, what clinical practice is, um, how do you manage patients, who qualifies for which trial based on what criteria, and why did you choose those uh, to residents and fellows, I think that also plays an important role. And I think that's the, probably the biggest message that I'd love to convey is, uh, is to collaborate uh, with people, uh, but try and mesh all of these things together, uh, clinic, clinical work, research work, uh, teaching and education, rather than try and separate and carve out time for each, uh, because we certainly don't have enough time uh, to do all of that. All right, excellent. Thank you so much. Um, reminder to everybody to please post any questions in the chat function. We'll try and address them um, during breaks in the, in the lecture. So um, thank you so much for being here and take it away, Dr. Ramasamy. Perfect. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, good morning. So the uh, goal for today is to talk about the evidence behind uh, restorative therapies for erectile dysfunction. Uh, this is obviously uh, have become, has become a very hot topic. 
because of the amount of uh, ads, uh, both in uh, lay press as well as in the media, um, about restorative therapies for uh, erectile dysfunction. Uh, men often uh, do not want to uh, go to doctors, admit that they have erectile dysfunction, and so are uh, quick to seek out solutions uh, that uh, can be easy, uh, but often not efficacious. And I think it's very important to understand uh, who uh, will benefit from these therapies, who will not, um, and, and try and counsel our patients uh, based on uh, what we think the evidence behind all of these are. So uh, we could start, these are my uh, disclosures. So treatment of erectile dysfunction uh, since 1973 has gone initially from the, uh, in fact, the penile prosthesis that was first discovered, followed by the intracavernosal injections. Um, and then we went on to develop MUSE. Um, and then EDEX came out for uh, intracavernosal injection. And in fact, the PD-5 inhibitors were the last to come out in the treatment of erectile dysfunction, which we use the most now, uh, with uh, basically uh, the Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, Staxin, and Stendra, uh, the five PD-5 inhibitors on the market. However, none of these therapies, it is important to understand, can reverse uh, the pathophysiology of erectile dysfunction, can definitely not offer a cure, and certainly the attractiveness of, of uh, reversing the pathophysiology of erectile dysfunction uh, certainly is uh, very important. So, in the uh, erectile dysfunction treatment algorithm, I think it's important to understand with the, uh, in the prior AUA guideline, it was basically a stepwise approach. It was lifestyle modification. Uh, you fail that, you go on to PD-5 inhibitors. You fail that, you go on to vacuum pumps or uh, intracavernosal injections. And then if that doesn't work, uh, we offered penile prosthesis. However, in the most recent version of the AUA guideline, uh, the uh, shared decision-making approach was, uh, is used, and basically patients can be offered all of these treatment approaches, and, uh, and, and, and the doctor and the, and the patient need to decide on what the best approach to use is. You don't need to fail one to go to the other. Obviously, I think if you've never tried pills, I think going to a penile prosthesis would be a terrible idea. I don't think that's what the AUA guideline is advocating, uh, but I think the, ad, uh, the, uh, the message there is to say that a young man post-prostatectomy who did not undergo nerve sparing shouldn't be forced to go through all of these treatment options prior to discussing a penile prosthesis. So first, uh, of the three uh, therapies that I'm gonna talk about today for uh, restoration of erectile function, we will start with uh, shockwave therapy. I'll certainly stop after each one of these to basically take questions. So if you guys have questions about any one of them, uh, please feel free to post them on the chat. I will pause and take questions before we move on to the uh, next therapy. So shockwave therapy to erect, uh, for treating erectile dysfunction. Um, this is just South Florida. If you uh, Google it, uh, it's all over the place. Uh, there's something called Gainswave. I'll talk a little bit about what it is and what it isn't. Um, and uh, certainly it's being offered. So whether we as doctors uh, like it or not, whether we offer it in our clinics or not, patients are seeking it. And uh, they're seeking it either from a doctor, uh, sometimes not from a medical professional. And I think that's where the line uh, of who can offer therapy and who cannot gets very blurry. And I'll hope to try and, uh, and, and, and convey the message of why it's even happening and how it's happening, because it really uh, doesn't happen in just about any other facet of medicine that we uh, deal with. 
Neurology Times in 2017 actually published this uh, front page article on uh, how shockwave therapies can change the future of erectile dysfunction. Uh, certainly has gotten mainstream because of several well done studies outside the United States, uh, very few done within the United States. And basically right now we don't have an FDA approval for shockwave therapy for erectile dysfunction in the United States because of uh, lack of well done studies in the US and uh, obviously lack of funding from uh, industry as well for, um, to support this effort. So what is shockwave therapy? I think as urologists, we're all very familiar with what shockwave therapy is for kidney stones. They obviously are focused on a very small focal volume and the energy is very concentrated uh, trying to uh, basically break the kidney stone. Shockwave therapy for erectile dysfunction is the complete opposite. The waves are focused over a much larger focal volume and the energy is spread over a much greater area uh, compared to uh, shockwave therapy for kidney stones, which is all focused on uh, just one spot, basically. Shockwave therapy actually in the United States is approved to treat other medical conditions. Uh, plantar fasciitis and Achilles tendonitis actually have an FDA approved device with an FDA label uh, stating that shockwave therapy can be used to treat these conditions. There are NIH-sponsored clinical trials being done for shockwave therapy for myocardial revascularization to try and see if we can improve blood flow in the heart uh, neoangiogenesis. Similar concept to what we want to do in the penis in men with erectile dysfunction. So the biggest problem right now that we have is there are several devices in the market. These are all a few of the devices that are most commonly used. Uh, Direx and Medispec are probably two of the largest companies uh, that have uh, been around uh, for a long time from Israel, uh, both having their own uh, shockwave devices. Uh, ED1000 is by Medispec and Mornova is by Direx. I'll speak a little bit more about this because we are doing studies at the University of Miami using this particular device. And Dornier has a machine, Aries 2, and Wolf has a machine, which is piezoelectric. And the one machine, and this is probably the one that I get the most calls about uh, from urologists in the US, is that uh, this is the storage machine called Duolith. This is actually FDA approved. So this has been FDA approved to treat Achilles tendonitis and plantar fasciitis. And doctors in the United States can purchase this machine and use it off-label for men with erectile dysfunction. So what is uh, shockwave therapy and how does it actually work? So these are basically uh, shocks. These are high energy ultrasound, uh, just like um, any other ultrasound basically delivered to the corpus uh, cavernosum, um, both in the uh, penile shaft and hopefully within the perineum as well. And so basically we try and target both the, uh, plus the penile shaft uh, to try and improve blood flow in the uh, corpus cavernosum. One of the very nice uh, basic science reviews, John Katz is a resident here at the University of Miami with Raul Clavijo, my first fellow who's now at UC Davis, wrote a very basic paper on what shockwave therapy is and what, as urologists, we need to understand on what shockwave therapy is. I won't go into too much of the physics behind this, but basically you have to understand that basically a shockwave is a very high energy wave. It has to increase in its peak and its amplitude very fast, and it has to drop very fast. And this is an extremely important concept. You have to understand this because this is how you can distinguish from what a gains wave is. So it's characterized by a rapid rise in pressure 
over a short interval of time. And this is extremely important uh, as a concept to understand what shockwave is. Now, gains wave technology, this is what we see in the ads all the time. Patients come in with flyers using this technology and ask us, Doc, I went and got gains wave. I want to go and get gains wave. So what are you as urologists supposed to tell these patients? So a shockwave, I told you, has to rise fast and fall fast, and it has to have a very high amplitude. A gains wave uses radial waves, and the maximum pressures that are generated with gains wave and radial waves are extremely low and the pulse durations are about 1,000 times longer. And that's why this has been classified as a class one device and has a very low risk of harm to the patient. And that's why chiropractors, hairdressers, and uh, nail salons can actually have these radial shock waves and administer them in their clinics, clinics or in their uh, salons for men with erectile dysfunction. And that's the biggest distinction that I want you guys to understand. A shockwave uh, is a wave that has a very high amplitude and a very rapid fall. And these devices are FDA class two devices, which need to be under the purview of the FDA. A gains wave uses a radial wave, which basically has very low pressures and pulse durations that are much longer and therefore are classified as class one devices and do not need to be under at the FDA monitoring. So basically, this is a very nice table that was published in the, uh, in the uh, same manuscript demonstrating the differences between the devices that are out there. So radial wave, this is the gains wave that we spoke about. The other three types of shockwave devices are the electrohydraulic, electromagnetic, and piezoelectric. Of all these devices, electrohydraulic has the uh, highest peak energy compared to the electromagnetic or the piezoelectric. And all three are shockwaves, and they truly deliver shockwaves and that's what's important to understand. So the number of studies that have been actually being done using gains wave to demonstrate uh, improvement in erectile dysfunction that is peer reviewed and published uh, is unfortunately none. So what happens to the cavernosal tissue? What are we trying to do? Doc, what's happening when you actually give shock waves to patients? I think it's important to basically tell them that the, the two big concepts. One is a concept of neoangiogenesis, basically, Shockwaves administered to the corpus cavernosum improves uh, growth factors with uh, vascular growth factors and try and improve blood flow to the penis, hopefully translating into increased peak systolic velocity on a, uh, on a much bigger magnitude. And, and the other concept is the concept of recruiting stem cells that basically engender growth of cor corpus cavernosal tissue. Tom Lu's work uh, in the animals shows very nice data uh, that uh, neural stem cells are able to be recruited after shockwave therapy to the corpus cavernosum. So two big reasons, angiogenesis, recruitment of stem cells are what we think happens based on animal studies. Uh, none of the human, we don't have any human data to support this, that how shockwave therapy can potentially improve uh, erectile function. So Taylor Cohen uh, uh, was a medical student, but now is a resident at Hopkins, did a very nice meta-analysis of about seven randomized trials for shockwave therapy, uh, which used placebo. So unlike the other two restorative therapies, we actually have very good data using randomized control trials for shockwave therapy. They're just all over the place, but we have data. They, we uh, included a total of 600 subjects, uh, about 60 years in age. Follow-up was only five months, uh, but the improvement in IIEF-EF score was about six points in the treatment arm, 
and about 1.6 uh, points in the sham arm. Uh, around the same time, Tom Liu published uh, their meta-analysis of about seven studies, uh, 800 subjects, follow-up ranged anywhere between three to six months. Unfortunately, the improvement in IIEF on, with everybody included was about uh, two, uh, but the patients with mild uh, to moderate ED had better therapeutic efficacy. So patients with severe ED did not respond, whereas patients with mild to moderate ED uh, appeared to respond better in this meta-analysis. So we did our uh, phase two clinical trial here uh, at the University of Miami. Manuel Molina uh, was uh, a, an important member of uh, starting and completing this trial. Premal Patel was my fellow last year. He's now at the University of Manitoba. We recruited a total of 80 men with erectile dysfunction between 30 and 80 years old. Their baseline IIEF EF scores were between 11 to 25. So we only included, based on Tom Liu's meta-analysis, included only men with mild uh, to moderate erectile dysfunction. We randomized them to two arms. So I did not want, we didn't want, we wanted to test the safety first before we assess the efficacy. So we basically uh, gave every uh, patient treatment Group A received uh, five daily treatments for about 720 shocks, and Group B received six treatments of 600 shock waves over uh, the period of uh, two weeks. And we finally uh, evaluated their IIEF and EHS scores at one, uh, three, and uh, six months. And this is the uh, device that we used. We used the Mornova shock wave generator, uh, and this is from Direx, and this is from Israel. And we got FDA clearance to basically use this uh, generator only for the purposes of the clinical trial uh, at the University of Miami. And this is a two-minute video uh, demonstrating um, how we administer the shocks. So basically that we set the device to deliver a total of 720 shocks. And this is administered in clinic. So this device has dual applicators uh, with, um, with administering shocks just to the penis, so in the penile shaft, so we cannot uh, really get to the perineum with this, uh, but we try and get as much of the uh, penis as possible. And that's how the shocks are administered. And uh, basically the So we clamp the penis down on there. Uh, patients don't receive any local anesthesia or any anesthesia for that matter um, and are uh, pretty much pain-free throughout this uh, session. So what did we show? Uh, we showed that at uh, three months and at six months, uh, the IIEF score actually improves in both arms. So regardless of whether we gave it every other day, so Monday, Wednesday, Friday for two weeks in a row or Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, we showed similar improvements in both arms in both IIEF scores um, at both three months and at six months. And about 50% uh, of patients responded with the uh, SEP3 in basically both arms. And when we look at EHS scores, which are a sign of whether you're able to have penetrative intercourse or not, about 66% in, uh, in the one-week arm and 75% uh, the, in the two-week arm, 
uh, we're able to have EHS scores of about uh, three and four, which is basically having penetrative intercourse. So after this data, what do I tell patients now? I think there's about a 50% chance you're gonna come off of pills at the end of six months. That's all we can say. We have no idea what's gonna happen uh, in 12 months. We don't know who will fall into the 50%. And I think patient selection is probably the most important uh, message that we learned from doing this trial. So based, going back to the uh, treatment algorithm for erectile dysfunction as proposed by the FDA, sorry, the AUA, I think uh, it's important to understand that uh, non-surgical treatment is everywhere. But if you ask me where shockwave therapy is going to best benefit patients, I think it's in men who have never tried PD-5 inhibitors. They don't want to start taking a pill um, and they are like, and they want some sort of therapy uh, before they jump into the whole algorithm and start taking pills. And I think those patients with mild erectile dysfunction will probably best respond to shockwave therapy. And this is a message that I think we've learned from this trial as well, where I've, the protoplasm, uh, the penis, the corpus cavernosum, the blood vessels, the nerves, and the, and the cavernosal tissue all need to be intact. I think you can, with shockwave therapy, you can go from good to great. But I don't think you can, um, if you lack nerves, if you lack hormones, if you lack a proper uh, cavernosal tissue, giving that penis shockwave therapy, I don't think is going to help much. And I think that's what we learned uh, from this trial. And obviously there are very good studies to show that shockwave therapy can certainly be used in men with PD-5 inhibitor failures, where you can, get, you can convert men uh, who have failed PD-5 or who don't respond adequately on PD-5 inhibitors to start responding well back on PD-5 inhibitors. So I think this is where the role is important. In men with uh, radiation therapy, non-nerve sparing radical prostatectomy, uh, patients post cystectomy, um, I, but severe diabetes where there is large venous leaks. I think those men are best served with actual treatments that we have for erectile dysfunction and less served with uh, restorative therapies like uh, shockwave therapy. So uh, circling back, I think it's important to understand that the AUA guidelines basically state that at this point, it should be considered investigational. Uh, because we didn't do the uh, efficacy uh, trial, we have now started at the University of Miami to do an efficacy trial, a phase three trial, where we're recruiting a total of 120 men, 40 men randomized to the uh, sham arm, where we put a shield uh, so the patients can hear the shocks, but the actual no shocks are delivered to the penis and remaining 80 men that actually get treated. And we're now following these men in this trial uh, for up to 12 months to see if the efficacy is there and how long it lasts um, in, uh, in these men with typically mild uh, or mild to moderate TD. Uh, in fact, we've uh, made the IIEF score uh, to be now uh, 16 to 25 as the recruitment arm for the phase three trial. So I think it should be considered investigational for those of you who are thinking about uh, purchasing a shockwave machine, at least start collecting the data uh, for the men that you're administering so you'll understand who it works in and who it doesn't. And I think this is where we are right now is we're trying to, it does work. We just don't know who it works in. And I think as a community and a society, uh, it is important that we determine uh, who uh, the appropriate candidate is in. And I think because it's not FDA approved, uh, the panel basically stated that uh, you need to have this uh, done under the auspices of an IRB approved clinical trial. So before we go on to the uh, next uh, uh, session on uh, uh, regenerative therapies where I'm gonna talk about stem cells, 
uh, I'm very happy to take any questions that we have uh, right now. Um, so we have one question from Dr. Aaron Katz. He asks, um, are you charging men in your practice who are not in the trial or is this only for research? Um, he says, I think, this, I think that's an important question. Um, I think it's important to understand that uh, in the, so for the men that qualify for the trial and participate in the trial, uh, we are not charging. Uh, we are not offering uh, the, the shockwave therapy to patients who do not qualify on the trial. Uh, some docs are charging multiple thousands. Yes, absolutely. Yes, the, the uh, going rate in Florida is anywhere between uh, $2,500 to $6,000. Uh, but uh, Dr. Katz, very good question. I think it's also important to understand that, uh, that as if, if patients are paying and they are getting shockwave therapy, I think that is okay. The uh, hardest part for uh, me is when uh, they paid the money and they really didn't get shockwave therapy and they were told they were getting shockwave therapy and they got something at their hairdresser. And I think that's what, uh, that's the part that I think uh, we need to try and quell and try and explain to the patients what is and what's not shockwave therapy. Um, and then we had another question. Um, have there been any studies showing Gaines wave inducing any level of angiogenesis or recruiting progenitor cells? No, sir. Uh, there haven't been any properly done studies using Gaines wave period. Um, I think it'll be too much to ask for uh, using uh, Gaines wave and actually studying the biology of the, uh, of the penis. They claim to be shockwave, and so they ride on all of the shockwave studies that have been published, but it's important to understand the uh, focal versus the uh, radial shock waves. And then a question from Dr. Lim, uh, is it better to try shockwave on men who respond initially to a trial of PDE5 inhibitors, you know, because that might demonstrate viable cavernosal tissue and vascularity? That's a very good question. I think, um, I think yes, I think if you uh, show that if they respond to PDE5 inhibitors, that's a very good test of vasculogenesis and neoangiogenesis. What we do is before we do that, we actually do penile dopplers on all the patients. Uh, and in patients who have low PSVs and basically normal EDVs appear to respond the best. So uh, we actually wash out patients on PD5 inhibitors for about four to six weeks before the trial starts. In fact, before they can even submit their IIEF questionnaires, uh, but certainly a very good idea to try uh, if it is a, if it, if you have an intact uh, corpus cavernosum, intact nerves, and intact uh, hormones. So, great idea. Um, and then we have another question. How long would you try shockwave therapy before you consider it a failure and move on to another modality? So, it's not a how long, correct? I mean, uh, you should uh, decide on a protocol that you want to use. Um, you need to uh, figure out what uh, sessions you're going to use and how many shocks you're going to deliver. And then the best improvement, as we showed in our study, uh, was seen at actually at three to six months, right? By the, I think by the end of six months, if the patient says, Doc, I'm not feeling any difference, and they fell into that 50% 50, 50 of patients that didn't respond, I think then you should start thinking about therapy. So it's not really how long on shockwave therapy, but it's really how long to wait after shockwave therapy before you decide uh, that you were either a responder or a non-responder. Okay. And it's sort of related to that. Somebody asked how many uh, cycles um, and for what duration would you try? I think 
six months answers the duration question, but correct. Um, the uh, cycles basically depends on the protocol, right? I mean, we didn't do cycles. We delivered uh, a total of 3,600 shocks and we uh, delivered it as part of two uh, frequencies. We are basically one arm um, getting uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday for two weeks in a row, uh, 600 shocks. And then the other arm, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, 720 shocks uh, every day for a total of 3,600. So, uh, so I think the question was how many shocks, but that's how many shocks. But uh, make sure the device that you're purchasing has some data behind it. Go back and study the data behind it. Speak with the investigators that have done the trials uh, before you start launching it in your practice and figuring out how many shocks to use. Um, and then our own Alex Smalls asked, are any of the shockwave devices better or easier to use than the others in your experience? Um, we've obviously used only one device uh, with the uh, Tyrex Mornova uh, device because we are doing a clinical trial with it. It's fairly straightforward um, from speaking with other investors. Um, and so I don't think it's better or easier. That There is data, thankfully, supporting majority of these shockwave devices outside the United States. Uh, ours was the first trial done in the U.S. to end up in a peer-reviewed publication. Uh, but certainly uh, read up about it and speak with the people that have used the device before you uh, think about delving into this. Okay. And then Dr. Betran asked, any contraindications for shockwave treatment? Uh, so far, we haven't seen any. Um, we have recruited patients who are taking blood thinners uh, as well on the, uh, on the trial, and uh, we haven't seen any side effects um, that are different in uh, patients that were on uh, blood thinners versus those that are not. So uh, no contraindications. Uh, the, uh, it's, the indications are probably the more important one on figuring out which patients would benefit from the treatment uh, versus those that uh, wouldn't, and I think that's where uh, uh, we are at this juncture right now, figuring out who to get therapy and who not to. All right. And then Dr. Watson asked, uh, any possibility of as well causing Peronis? Um, I know it's often used to, to treat it now, but... Um... No, it's a great question. So, um, you know, shockwave therapy was actually uh, uh, first trialed in the early 2000s for Peronis disease. So the same concept of, oh my gosh, it can break a stone in the kidney it can probably break a plaque in the penis was the idea. Uh, interestingly, all of the trials done for Peyronie's disease failed, but men actually came back and reported saying, doc, my curvature is the same, my plaque is the same, but my erections are better. And so that's when uh, Vardy from Israel basically went on to do the first trial in 2010 for men with erectile dysfunction. And now obviously over the next decade has spawned all of these studies for men with ED. So uh, we actually have Peyronie's disease as a contraindication and an exclusion criteria in our trial. So we don't recruit men with Peyronie's disease given that data. Uh, but the question is good. Uh, the uh, question basically says, is shockwave therapy cause scar tissue causing uh, long-term Peyronie's disease? The longest we've followed patients out for from the trial are about 12 to 18 months. We haven't seen any abnormal curvatures, uh, but that is the theoretical risk. But because our dose uh, and amplitude of shockwaves are so low, I suspect that that happening uh, from microvascular trauma leading to plaque formation, leading to Peyronie's disease, uh, is a small but definitely something that we need to uh, follow up on on long-term trials. 
All right, and then I think the last question for this section will be uh, from Dr. Valenzuela. He asked if there's any difference between linear and focal therapies. I think we spoke about that. I think the radial uh, versus focal, I think, is probably uh, very important. There's just no data to support the uh, radial therapy. Um, um, I just, I, this, the concept of uh, shockwave is not what radial waves are. And I think that is, uh, we have used obviously only the focal devices. Um, and the FDA uh, mandates the focal therapy devices need to be approved just because of a safety and efficacy uh, with a radial wave uh, because the uh, safety is there uh, I, I, I don't think the efficacy comes with it so I think you should be very careful when you're thinking about uh, going into this and and purchasing a radial wave device uh, rather than a focal therapy device all right, I think we're, we're good on questions here and can go on to the next section. All right, very good. So um, some of the other uh, emerging uh, tools for uh, regenerative medicine in uh, erectile dysfunction, we spoke a little bit about pharmacotherapy. Uh, the next, obviously the biggest hot topic is stem cell therapy. And this is not just an ED, it is happening uh, in uh, just about every field uh, in medicine. So we'll talk a little bit about stem cell therapy. So what are stem cells? Uh, where can they be obtained from? Stem cells basically have three distinct properties. Uh, number one, it needs to have the ability to self-renew. So if you have a cell, it can't just stay there. It needs to divide and it needs to constantly keep dividing for you to call it a stem cell. Number two, it has to proliferate extensively. And it can't just, can't just do two or three cell divisions. It needs to do multiple cell divisions. And those cells need to keep dividing more and more. And most importantly, it has to have the ability to develop into multiple lineages. It can't just be determined um, for uh, one cell type. It, need, it should be able to transform itself based on the surrounding factors, based on paracrine factors, to uh, develop into any cell type where uh, it is supposed to reside in. Obviously, the concept in the erectile dysfunction is if you put stem cells inside the penis, uh, they will transform itself into either uh, blood vessels or uh, pretty much, hopefully, uh, cavernosal tissue. What are some of the sources of adult stem cells? I think bone marrow is probably the most commonly used uh, stem cell source in uh, medicine. Uh, certainly we can derive stem cells from adipose tissue uh, as well as the umbilical cord. So bone marrow aspiration, so this is where uh, most of the uh, bone marrow uh, is obtained uh, for uh, stem cells from the hip bone. And then once you obtain the bone marrow aspirate, they can uh, either become um, uh, culture enriched, basically to use uh, stem cells and identify mesenchymal stem cells, or they can just get purified with facts and uh, used it direct, used directly. So all of these things, it's important to understand, needs to have uh, an FDA approval and IND approval, because once you remove the aspirate and once you process them uh, and culture them, uh, it becomes a drug and you definitely need um, an IND to actually go back and inject it into the patient. And so once you're able to uh, culture those stem cells, it's supposed to be a direct injection uh, inside the corpus cavernosum and to uh, wait to see what the difference is. Now, the, most, uh, the more common one that is being used by uh, clinics across the United States is the uh, liposuction procedure where it, it marketed as stem cells, but it's really the stromal vascular fraction that is obtained uh, from the liposuction procedure. Max Toe, an incoming intern here at the University of Miami, uh, put together this uh, very nice animation showing that uh, with the uh, fat that is obtained from the liposuction procedure, 
we're able to get something called the stromal vascular fraction. So you get oil, mature adipocytes, the aqueous layer, and then the stromal vascular fraction. And this is supposed to have stem cell-like properties, but really not stem cells. And this is what gets injected inside the penis. And this is what is marketed as stem cells for ED uh, from all of those uh, clinics. And so basically you uh, take the stromal vascular fraction and you're able to inject this inside the corpus cavernosum. And so stem cells, how might they be used in men with uh, erectile dysfunction? And what is the theory? One, we think it directly replaces the corpus cavernosum or the building block theory. You put stem cells, you put stromal vascular fraction, these cells actually become the corpus cavernosum, right? It can develop into multiple lineages we spoke, and hopefully it'll, uh, it'll develop into the corpus cavernosum. And number two, it'll provide a support to the surrounding corpus cavernosum by releasing cytokines, growth factors, a paracrine theory, where they don't really transform themselves into corpus cavernosum, but these cells inside the penis will provide factors that will either cause neoangiogenesis, recruitment of stem cells like we saw in shockwave therapy, and then support uh, uh, growth of the uh, erectile function. Jordan Best, the current chief of staff, he's applying for urology this year, did a very nice survey of stem cell clinics uh, across the United States. In the western half of the country, basically all these clinics charge anywhere between uh, four to uh, $16,000. Uh, the success, if you ask them, are basically highly successful or very successful. And where they get these cells from, uh, from uh, mostly adipose tissue, like we spoke about the SVF, uh, but certainly the umbilical cord and the bone marrow. And in the eastern part of the uh, United States, same story, uh, four and clinics in the Northeast and six clinics in the Southeast basically charge anywhere between five to $10,000. And if you ask them, they're all highly successful um, and they can get tissue from anywhere. Sometimes these clinics are unaware of where the uh, cells even come from. But really interesting to see that the landscape across the country is pretty uniform. And unfortunately, this is the information that's being told uh, to patients when they call these clinics. And we need to be aware of this because this is what is being told. And we need to understand what the basis behind this is instead of just saying that's garbage. Don't go there. Right? Patients are going there. They're going there. They're getting these treatments. These clinics are marketing these for the patients. So I think we should not be ignorant and just say, we don't like it. There's no data but we should understand what the landscape is. And so we make an educated counseling session uh, when patients come in with these questions. So what are the current status of human trials in erectile dysfunction and Peyronie's disease in the US? So basically pretty much very small studies that have been done um, with uh, Peyronie's disease, as well as a trial with ED after prostatectomy, uh, case series, uh, really very few, uh, very minimal data. Uh, we are truly waiting for the uh, multi-center trial that was uh, closed about a year ago uh, with Mokira and Urban Goldstein. Uh, the study results are completed and uh, they're pending. We're starting for the trial. Uh, we're waiting to start uh, the trial with the, uh, uh, between Hopkins, Dr. Goldstein, Mokira, uh, where they're going to use SVF to treat symptoms of ED. Uh, they're not yet recruiting, but I think uh, once this gets off and we are able to uh, get some proper data on stem cells, uh, I think this would be very important for our field because we can actually counsel these patients much better. Uh, unlike shockwave therapy, this is it. We have meta-analyses in shockwave therapy. Uh, we have a single arm case series in stem cells. So the, uh, the data that's available for stem cells for ED, uh, much, much less compared to uh, shockwave therapy. Jesse Ori, uh, incoming fellow from Canada this year, 
and Russell Salzman here at the University of Miami put together a very nice post-talk analysis of uh, data on stem cells uh, that were injected for men with cardiomyopathy here. And we showed that uh, regardless of whether, so basically this was placebo in the green bars and the red bars were the stem cells. And here again, placebo in the uh, blue bars and green bars were allogenic stem cells where they got the stem cells from another source versus autologous stem cells where it was gotten from the same patient. We do see at a very high dose, at a very high uh, uh, autologous source, we are able to see some difference, though not statistically significant. Uh, but certainly, I think based on this data, we can conclude uh, that erectile dysfunction does not appear to improve with stem cells when it's given systemically for men with cardiomyopathy. At least this is randomized trials. Uh, Post-talk analysis, this was not the primary outcome. This was not powered to detect EF differences but certainly some signal to say that at least it's safe. You can give erectile uh, fun uh, stem cells systemically. Erectile function is not gonna worse. Some signal to show that at a very high dose and an autologous source that we are able to see uh, some differences in erectile function, uh, even at the end of 12 months, which is pretty impressive. Shom Lokeshwar, a medical student now, but going on to Yale this year for urology, wrote a very nice review, uh, basically stating the current state of affairs of stem cell therapy. We just don't know so many things. We have no idea how many cells to administer, how often to give them, where to get it from, should we get it from the bone marrow, should we get it from the uh, abdominal fat, uh, whether they need to be frozen or can they, they, do they need to be fresh. And certainly the FDA has put so many mandates because unlike shockwave therapy, stem cells can have pretty bad side effects uh, with emboli, uh, with allergic infectious reactions, and certainly formation of abnormal tissue and cancer uh, should not be uh, should definitely be in the consideration uh, because stem cell therapies and clinics have come under a lot of scrutiny uh, for so many false claims and certainly causing a lot of adverse effects. So if you're thinking about stem cell therapy, um, unlike shockwave therapy, it has a lot of side effects and you need to be very careful uh, before you think of uh, delving into this uh, field. So what does uh, stem cell therapy do? I think uh, nice research basically showing that if you do it uh, in animals, that uh, when you do give stem cell therapy, the fibrosis improves and you're able to show that the uh, nerve regeneration happens. This is obviously vehicle treated where you see more fibrosis and here you see less fibrosis and here you see more nerve uh, tissue regeneration uh, when you do give it in animal studies. So I think there is signal, it does work. Um, we're trying to understand how it works, but I think when we translate this animal data into humans, we just have to be very careful uh, because of all of the safety considerations. Um, here in Florida, there's lots of clinics that have been shut down uh, because of uh, FDA mandates. And I think it's uh, important that the FDA intervenes uh, because now patient safety has become a huge concern uh, with these uh, stem cell clinics. Uh, Kevin Chu, a current resident at the University of Miami with Russell, uh, is we're now gonna start a trial for uh, SVF. So stromal vascular fraction obtained from abdominal liposuction for Peyronie's disease. So not for ED, we want to start a trial for Peyronie's disease. We want to do a randomized uh, double-blind study uh, recruiting men between 18 to 75 years old uh, with stable disease and no ventral plaques. So we truly want to focus on dorsal plaques like we do for Xiaflex and their penile curvature needs to be at least less, definitely less than 90 degrees. And we're going to evaluate uh, changes in penile curvature as well as PDQ scores for men with Peyronie's disease to try and see if stem, uh, SVF that's injected into the plaque at the end of three and six months uh, versus placebo 
will actually show differences in curvature, especially in men who have uh, used and uh, failed Xyaflex and don't want to proceed to uh, surgical treatment options for Peyronie's disease. So what are the current AUA guidelines on stem cells? Uh, certainly it has to be investigational and uh, it has definitely not been demonstrated with even uh, properly done uh, clinical trials comparing uh, to placebo. And I think we don't know the source, we don't know what the duration is, and certainly the risks are substantial. Uh, so when you're thinking about stem cells, be, uh, be very careful and your uh, caution for patients uh, needs to be much more uh, when they tell you, doc, I'm gonna go get stem cells and urge them not to do it uh, compared to when the patient is telling you, doc, I'm gonna go get uh, gains wave from my hairdresser. Uh, any questions on stem cells before we go on to the third and last uh, modality of restorative therapies? Um, we don't have any questions on stem cell yet, but we can give it a minute to see if anybody wants to enter anything. Uh, there, there is a question from before. What was learned from well that may benefit from um, linear shock waves or harm? Um, I, I think it's very difficult to translate the data that we have on shockwave therapy for kidney stones to uh, using it uh, for ED. So I don't think we've learned much from shockwave therapy. We did learn shockwave therapy for, uh, you know, for the actual renal damage where collateral damage happened and there were studies that have uh, demonstrated association long-term of hypertension and diabetes due to renovascular disease from shockwave therapy for kidney stones. Um, I think to sort of translate that data, we have to think about collateral damage that happens to the penis. But thankfully, I think the question on Peroni's disease is probably uh, a similar corollary to that where we think scar tissue on the uh, penis can lead to uh, long-term PD uh, from shockwave therapies used for ED. And then we, we did get a question from uh, Dr. Achua. Is there difficulty obtaining stem cells that may be influencing price? And has there been any thought to using induced pluripotent stem cells to decrease price uh, for the treatment of uh, ED, et cetera? That's an excellent question. Um, I, don't, I don't think the source of uh, stem cells is the, is the reason for price. I think the um, IPS cells are, uh, are equally expensive, uh, but unfortunately, uh, we just don't have any studies using IPS cells uh, for ED. And, um, and the whole question of uh, whether it's safe, whether it can be given, how many cells to give, I think all of them remain, uh, but certainly um, the, the price factor is not because of the source, uh, it's, uh, it's because of everything else that's uh, being done. And patients fall prey to this, right? I mean, unfortunately we're dealing a very, with, a, with, a, with a very vulnerable population. Men are willing to do just about anything to get their penises back to work, um, except surgery. And so uh, before they get surgery, they want to exhaust all the options and they think our restorative therapies are a good treatment option and they're willing to spend the money uh, for that. And um, unfortunately, uh, doctors, sometimes non-medical professionals, take advantage of that uh, situation and, uh, and uh, pretty much use these patients to, uh, to make money with, with little data behind it. All right. Let's move on. Uh, the third and... Uh, the uh, last form of uh, restorative therapies are uh, platelet-rich plasma. This is basically an injection that is rich in autologous growth factors that'll help with uh, nerve damage uh, contributing to ED by hopefully improving the nitric oxide pathway. PRP is used in medicine a lot. It's used in orthopedics uh, to promote healing of soft tissue in joints. 
the important thing to understand is that uh, PRP uh, can either be leukocyte poor uh, or leukocyte rich. And the recommendation really depends upon indication. So how is PRP done? So basically it is uh, a phlebotomy and basically the blood is spun down and uh, there are three parts once uh, the blood is spun down. So there's either platelet-poor plasma, which gets discarded, uh, platelet-rich plasma, which is what we wanna use, um, and finally the RBCs, which also get discarded. So basically, it is this fraction that we are interested, uh, which uh, is called often the uh, P-sharp. And basically, uh, we take the PRP, and this should be a cavernosal injection, uh, with hopefully a tourniquet so we don't let the uh, cells or the PRP go back into the systemic circulation and it's present within the corpus cavernosum to try and improve erectile function. So when you look at uh, PRP statistics, there's one study uh, on phase two listed in clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, there's few more that are not yet recruiting, but certainly just one for now. Uh, but however, if you Google PRP, there's over 147,000 results. Uh, website marketing will tell you that it makes the erections bigger, improved sex life, and certainly improving climax and orgasm. And the injections can vary anywhere between $1,500 uh, to $3,000 per injection. Sometimes uh, doctors claiming that patients need more than one injection uh, to get their penis to work. Uh, the first case series was published by Amy Perman and Ryan Terlecki out of uh, Wake Forest, where they recruited uh, five men and about four to nine cc of PRP was injected and about two injections were performed. IAEF score was improved about four, uh, by four points. Uh, adverse events were seen with mild pain and bruising uh, in, a small in a minority of these patients. So this is the data that we have. We have one good uh, case series uh, out of Wake Forest. However, if you do uh, look at what PRP is and P-shot is and the amount of marketing that's done, uh, it's uh, unbelievable. So what is... Uh, PRP, why do we have so many problems? I think we just don't know what uh, concentration to use and it's, and it's highly variable on what patients are actually getting when they get P-shots. Uh, we at the University of Miami, we are uh, planning to use the Arthrex Angel system, uh, which can actually modulate and monitor the number of leukocytes that are actually being injected uh, every time. Tom Masterson is a fellow now, is going to start the uh, trial on PRP uh, for ED. Naveen's a medical student that's helping him out. Uh, we have an IRB approved uh, protocol now for uh, PRP for ED. Uh, we're planning to do a randomized double blind study, including 72 men with ED. Men should be between 30 and 75 years old. Their IIEF score should be mild to moderate. Uh, hemoglobin A1C should be less than 9%. We don't want men who are overtly diabetic or with large venous leaks into the trial, and they can be on one PD5 inhibitor. Uh, throughout the study, and it has to be the same. And we intend on uh, monitoring patients for six months uh, after a period of two injections, um, and we will monitor their IIEF scores and Doppler ultrasounds before and after the study. So we're really excited uh, about starting the study, and hopefully we will have some data to start conveying to patients on whether this works. And again, we come, I come back to the same question on who it works, and I think patient selection is probably going to be key uh, with these therapies. So when you look at the AUA guidelines on PRP, uh, it's really just based on expert opinion. And we really don't have any full text, peer-reviewed publications to constitute any evidence base. So when you look at the amount of evidence on shockwave therapy, there's a lot of randomized trials. With stem cell therapy, there's very few. And now with PRP, there's almost none. And so 
uh, to counsel patients on whether this is useful or not. I think uh, we just really don't have any data to, uh, to even discuss this. So I'll conclude with the SMSNA position statement on regenerative or restorative therapies on shockwave therapy or PRP as well as stem cells. I think the SMSNA believes that all of these three therapies should be experimental and should be con conducted under research protocols. And I think this is probably most important. Patients will tell you that they signed up for a trial, but they actually paid money. Um, I think it's important that we need to understand that patients that actually enroll in these trials, especially placebo-controlled trials, uh, they shouldn't be really incurring any more than basic research costs for their participation. They shouldn't be paying to participate in the trial because now you're actually inducing a huge selection bias on who gets into the trial based on their uh, financial status. And that's when the data gets skewed and uh, the uh, validity of the study becomes uh, difficult to understand. Where is the future? Uh, Premal uh, Patel and Manuel put together this very nice uh, figure in IJIR basically showing that I think the future is in the combination. Um, I think there is a role for uh, shockwave therapy to be done uh, either before or after stem cell therapy where we can actually uh, in inject the growth factors and then stimulate the growth factors with other forms of therapy. Uh, but I think we truly need uh, well done studies uh, with, uh, with each of these modalities individually uh, before we can start thinking about using combination of these uh, three modalities in the future uh, for trying and improving uh, erectile function. So in conclusion, I think it, it's important to understand that uh, current ED therapies really don't provide a cure for erectile dysfunction, a mere treatment uh, for uh, erectile dysfunction, and they don't reverse the pathophysiology. Uh, the mechanisms of how all of these appear to be, uh, they do appear to be promising, some initial studies have demonstrated benefit. I think it's important as urologists to understand what data exists and more importantly, what data does not exist for each of these three therapies. And I think for now, all these should be considered experimental until we do proper RCTs uh, in the United States trying to demonstrate efficacy and more importantly, demonstrate safety in that process uh, before we start routinely counseling patients uh, to undergo these therapies. And finally, this is my email address. For those of you who have questions, you're welcome to email me. For those of you who are watching this recorded and not live, you're welcome to email me or even direct message me on uh, Instagram. Uh, happy to take questions and, and answer concerns. And I will stop.